There were few places in Arliss Perry's new city of Stanford, California, where she really felt at home. However, Stanford Memorial Church, or Memchu, as it is referred to by university students and faculty, located in Stanford's main quad, was the exception. The church offered Arliss a sanctuary of calm and tranquility whenever she needed it. It was where she went on the night of October 12, 1974, after she and her new husband, Bruce Perry, got into a small argument over something trivial while out for a walk on campus. It was by no means a terrible fight, but it upset Arliss enough that she wanted to go to church and pray, instead of going back to their apartment right away. So Bruce returned home while Arliss headed in the direction of the quad. If Bruce had known what horrors would be inflicted on his young wife after they parted ways, he would never have let her go. I'm your host Natalie, and this is Talk Murder With Me, Episode 7, The Murders of Arliss Perry, Leslie Perlov, and Janet Taylor. Arliss K. Dykema was the youngest of Marvin and Jean Dykema's three children. She was born on February 22, 1955, in the tiny town of Linton, North Dakota, but grew up in Bismarck, the state capital, located an hour north of Linton. Arliss attended Bismarck High School, where she was a cheerleader and played basketball. She enjoyed baking, often making treats for the high school basketball team and her fellow cheerleaders. She was a member of Young Life and the Fellowship for Christian Athletes. When she wasn't at school, she was often studying the Bible or attending events at her church. Her Christian faith, along with her family and friends, were what she cherished most in life. Those who knew Arliss described her as a kind, compassionate, and optimistic person. Being from such a small city and living a very sheltered life did, however, mean she could be overly trusting and naive. In her 19 years, Arliss had never left the state of North Dakota. In 1970, the state had a population of just under 618,000. As of 2020, North Dakota ranks 47 out of 50 in terms of population density, and the population has actually grown by about 150,000 since 1970, just to give you an idea of how sparsely populated the state is. Arliss and her boyfriend, Bruce Perry, were high school sweethearts. Like Arliss, Bruce was deeply religious. He was also an excellent athlete. When he graduated from Bismarck High, he left North Dakota for Stanford University in California, where he had been accepted onto the pre-med program. Arliss and Bruce continued their relationship long distance while he was a college freshman and she attended community college. She also worked at Bruce's father's dental practice in Bismarck as a receptionist. When Bruce returned to Bismarck in the summer of 1974, he and Arliss married. At first, Arliss's parents were apprehensive about her plans to marry so young, but they saw how happy she was with Bruce and came around, supporting the marriage wholeheartedly. They also weren't thrilled about their youngest daughter moving so far away from home, but Bruce had to return for his sophomore year, and the plan was that Arliss would join him. 
After a big, happy wedding held at Bismarck Reformed Church, Arliss and Bruce honeymooned in a cabin owned by Arliss's parents for a week. Then they left for California. Jean and Marvin would never see their daughter alive again. On arriving in California, Arliss and Bruce moved into Quillen House in the Escondido Village on the Stanford University campus. With Bruce studying on an intense college course and working part-time to support himself and his new wife, he was always busy. This meant Arliss spent much of her time on her own. Moving from conservative Bismarck to liberal progressive Stanford was a huge change and Arliss struggled to adjust at first. She spent her days taking long walks around campus and writing letters to friends and family at home. It did not take long for Arliss to find work as a receptionist at a local law firm, which she was excited about as it would give her something to do during the day and she might make some friends. Arliss's favorite place in Stanford, as I mentioned earlier, was without a doubt the Stanford Memorial Church. The church really is beautiful, with ornate architecture, intricate stained glass windows behind the altar, and bright, cheerful murals adorning the walls. The church was dedicated in 1903 by Jane Stanford in memory of her late husband, Leland Stanford, the founder of Stanford University. Jane, who played a pivotal role in the church's planning and design, hoped that the church would be a focal point of the campus. It is often referred to as the university's architectural crown jewel. Faculty member Susan Christensen described the church to student newspaper, the Stanford Daily. It serves as a core part of the university, and its location, the quad, symbolizes that. The Stanfords felt very strongly that the spiritual component of your education was as important as the academic. On the night of October 12, 1974, Arliss wanted to take a walk and drop off some letters at the mailbox on campus. Bruce did not want her walking alone at night, so he decided to accompany her. As they walked, they got onto the subject of their car's tire pressure and began arguing over it. Arliss told Bruce she was going to go to the church to pray and cool off after their argument. By this time, it was just before 11pm. Bruce assumed that Arliss would not be gone for much longer than an hour, especially since it was late and the church would be closing soon. But the hours continued to pass and there was no sign of her. Bruce went to the church to look for her, but it was closed by the time he got there. So he went back to their apartment, which was still empty. At 3.30 a.m., Bruce called the police to report Arliss missing. He explained to them the events of that evening, that they had been out for a walk, had gotten into a small argument, and Arliss had gone to the church on her own to pray. Police went to the church but found it completely locked up as expected. Nothing appeared out of the ordinary. At around 5.40 a.m., however, they received a phone call from the night watchman at the church, Stephen Crawford. He had found a body in the church, he told them. Just a warning, the following description of the murder scene is graphic. Investigators arrived at the church to find the body of 19-year-old Arliss Perry, nude from the waist down, lying near the altar in the church's east transept. She lay face up, looking towards the altar. 
She was not wearing her glasses. These were never found. Her legs were spread open and her right arm was pinned behind her waist. Her jeans lay on top of her legs, arranged in a sort of diamond shape. She had been molested with a three-foot-long candlestick. Her cause of death was a blow to the head with an ice pick, which was protruding from behind her left ear. Marks on her neck did, however, suggest that her assailant tried to strangle her initially. Under her blouse, another candlestick had been placed between her breasts. Investigators and the Stanford community were horrified at the brutal murder. What had to be going through the killer's mind to commit such a heinous act against a kind and gentle young woman who had just moved to the area a mere two months ago? The country, in particular the state of California, was still on edge after the murders committed by Charles Manson's family just five years earlier in 1969. People were determined, with encouragement from the media, to place the blame for Arliss Perry's gruesome and bizarre murder on so-called Satanists or some sort of cult. They pointed to the way she was positioned, how her body was violated, and the fact she was found in a church as evidence that there was a satanic motivation. As it would turn out, Arliss's murder was not related to any sort of satanic ritual, despite what people wanted to believe. But decades would go by before the killer was identified, giving plenty of time for these sorts of rumors to spread. What they're spreading is the legend of the case, and then these legends carry on a life of their own, said retired FBI agent Kenneth Lanning, who had worked in the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit for 20 years. On Tuesday, October 15, 1974, a memorial service for Arliss was held at the Stanford Memorial Church. The area where her body was discovered was still inaccessible to the public. More than 180 people attended the service, led by Rev. Hamilton Kelly. Bruce Perry sat in the front row. He managed to stay composed until the end of the service, when he broke down in tears. Back in Bismarck, Arliss's funeral service was held on October 18th at the Reformed Church, where she and Bruce had married just two months earlier. It felt surreal to her friends and family, who had been there celebrating such a short time ago, to now be back, laying the young bride to rest. Investigators went about collecting evidence from the crime scene. Included in the evidence was a kneeling pillow with a semen stain on it, and one of the candlesticks used to assault Arliss, which had a palm print on it. As is the case in the vast majority of murder investigations, the first individuals to be scrutinized by the police are whoever found the victim, in this case Stephen Crawford, and the victim's partner, Bruce Perry. Bruce, who was clearly devastated, readily complied with investigators from the beginning. Police were taken aback when they first went to question him. When he answered the door to the apartment, his shirt was covered in blood. He explained that he was having a nosebleed brought on by stress, which actually proved to be true. He answered all their questions, gave them a sample of his DNA, and passed a lie detector test. The palm print found on the candlestick was not a match to his. As a result, he was quickly cleared as a suspect. 
Stephen Crawford told investigators that between 11 p.m. and 12 a.m. on October 12th, he had been in the church. Around 11.35 p.m., he called out to anyone who was still inside that the church would be closing in about 15 minutes. He did not see or hear anyone, so he locked up around 11.45 p.m., and he said he did a quote-unquote security check at 2 a.m., but he did not see Arliss's body. This would turn out to be false. He never actually did a security check. Other people who had been at the church and in the vicinity that night reported seeing Arliss arrive around 11 p.m. Some saw her inside at 11.35 p.m. When he went to open the church at 5.30 a.m., Crawford said, he approached the west side door, which he realized was partially open. It looked as though the lock had been broken from the inside, and he thought there had been a robbery. When he entered, he found Arliss's body. Nobody else was inside. Crawford was not particularly cooperative with investigators. He initially refused to give a sample of his DNA and would not take a lie detector test. The officer who spoke to him on the phone when he called to report that he had found a body was taken aback by his choice of words. Specifically, he said, Hey, we've got a stiff here. Stiff meaning a dead body. The palm print was not a match to Crawford either. As for the semen stain on the kneeling pillow, DNA analysis was not advanced enough at this point to identify who it came from. A method for DNA fingerprinting was not established until 1984 by British geneticist Alec Jeffries. Jeffries's method would not be commercialized until 1987, the year it was first used in a criminal trial in the United States. Stanford was no stranger to brutal slayings of young women. Two other murders, those of Leslie Marie Perlov and Janet Ann Taylor, had taken place in 1973 and 1974, respectively. Neither had been solved, and leads were few and far between. Leslie Marie Perlov, 21 years old and a recent Stanford graduate, disappeared on February 13, 1973, after leaving the North County Law Library in Palo Alto, where she worked as a clerk. Witnesses reported seeing Leslie sitting in her car around 6 p.m. speaking to a man with long blonde hair through her rolled-down window. Her car, an orange 1972 Chevrolet Nova, was found abandoned the next day. The keys were missing. Leslie lived with her widowed mother, Florence Perlov, in Los Altos Hills, and her two younger siblings, 20-year-old Diane and 18-year-old Craig. She planned to pursue a career as a lawyer and had been offered a place to study law at the University of Pennsylvania. She would have started her degree in the fall of 1973. On February 16th, three days after she was last seen, Leslie's body was discovered under an oak tree in the Stanford foothills. She had been strangled to death with her scarf, which was tied tightly around her neck. The coroner estimated that she died on the evening of February 13th. It looked as though her assailant had attempted to sexually assault her. Her skirt was pulled up around her waist, but she had fought him hard and he had been unsuccessful. Her pantyhose had been removed and stuffed in her mouth. Her purse was nowhere to be found. Initially, 15 detectives were working the investigation into Leslie's murder full-time, but months passed and no progress was made. 
Eventually, the number of detectives dwindled until only two were assigned to her case part-time. Janet Ann Taylor, also 21 at the time of her disappearance, was last seen hitchhiking at approximately 7.05 p.m. on March 24, 1974. She had been visiting friends on the Stanford University campus and needed to get home to let her two Doberman pinchers outside. She was attempting to get a ride home to La Honda, about 35 minutes from Stanford. Her friends begged her not to hitchhike, but she insisted she would be fine. The area where Janet was hitchhiking was less than a mile from where Leslie's body had been discovered just over a year earlier. Janet was not a Stanford graduate, but her father, Chuck Taylor, was the university athletic director and football coach. Janet had recently graduated from Canada College, a community college in Redwood City, about 15 minutes from Stanford. She had just began working at a maritime information firm in Palo Alto. The following day, March 25th, Janet's body was discovered by a milk truck driver in a ditch three miles from Stanford University on Sand Hill Road and Manzanita Way. Like Leslie, Janet had been strangled. She had not been sexually assaulted and was mostly clothed, aside from her raincoat, shoes, and belt, which were later discovered by detectives discarded along Sandhill Road. Like Leslie, she had been carrying a purse, but it was never found. Detectives were almost completely in the dark in the investigation into Janet's murder. They believed there was a sexual motivation, even though she had not been sexually assaulted. They assumed that whoever picked her up as she was hitchhiking had killed her, then discarded her belongings along Sandhill Road as he drove away. They had very few leads, and as Leslie's case had, it was not long before Janet's went cold. The public were convinced that Leslie and Janet were killed by the same person, even though detectives said there was no solid evidence to suggest this. At one point, detectives thought Ted Bundy might be responsible for Leslie and Janet's murders, as they both fit the physical description of Bundy's victims. They were college-aged, white, and had long dark hair. Bundy knew the area, as he had taken a summer class at Stanford in 1967. However, they could not find any evidence to implicate him in the murders. Initially, investigators explored the theory that Arliss was murdered by a random intruder who wasn't from the area. However, they scrapped this theory in favor of it being someone who knew the church well, the layout, the opening and closing times, etc. The FBI soon came to assist in the investigation. They came up with a profile of the killer in which they concluded that he was between the ages of 17 and 22, a quiet loner who kept meticulous notes about the church and churchgoers. They also suspected that he took belongings from his victims as macabre trophies, which would explain the absence of Arliss's glasses from the scene. David Berkowitz, also known as the serial killer Son of Sam, inserted himself into the Arliss Perry murder investigation in 1979, by which time five years had passed since she was killed. 
Leads had turned to a slow trickle at this point, and investigators were struggling. In August 1977, Berkowitz was apprehended and indicted for eight shootings which occurred in New York City between July 29, 1976 and July 31, 1977. He confessed to all eight and was given six life sentences in prison. Berkowitz was known for being somewhat of an attention seeker, initially telling the FBI that a demon disguised as his neighbor's dog told him to kill. He eventually retracted this outlandish story. He told court-appointed psychiatrist David Abrahamson that his motivation for murder was quote-unquote revenge on a world that he felt had rejected and hurt him. Berkowitz had written letters in which he suggested he knew who killed Arliss Perry. Investigators actually traveled across the country to interview Berkowitz at the Attica Correctional Facility in Attica, New York. It was obvious to detectives that Berkowitz was bored in prison. When he heard about Arliss's murder and the rumors that it may have been a ritual killing perpetrated by a satanic cult, he wanted to get involved. Berkowitz is known to enjoy feeling superior to authority figures, and pretending he had valuable information in this high-profile case was his way of achieving this. Sergeant Ken Kahn, who was one of the first investigators to arrive at the original crime scene, went to New York to speak with Berkowitz. He quickly realized that Berkowitz's claims were bogus, and after about 30 minutes, he ended the interview. Kahn said of Berkowitz, He claims he was in Queens in a cult meeting and that a guy stood up and said he killed Arliss Perry. Then he said he couldn't tell us who because someone would kill his father in Florida. We knew we were spinning our wheels. Khan added that many of the leads in this case, like the one from Berkowitz, sent investigators on a wild goose chase. Before moving on, I thought I'd briefly touch on the sorts of things that have been said with regards to this case and Satanism. I found all of this quite difficult to get my head around, but I'll do my best to explain it. All sorts of new articles have come out in the past few months due to the release of the Netflix docuseries Sons of Sam, which I actually haven't seen. These new articles did not really make any of this easier for me to understand. The Ultimate Evil is a 1988 true crime book written by former New York Post columnist Maury Terry. In the book, he writes about the Son of Sam murders and suggests that David Berkowitz did not act alone. According to Terry, Berkowitz was a member of the Process Church of the Final Judgment, or an offshoot of this group, a cult called the Children. The Process Church has been defined by some religious scholars as a satanic group. Supposedly, members of the Process Church were co-conspirators with Berkowitz in the Son of Sam murders. Terry wrote in his book that according to Berkowitz, Arliss Perry was stalked from North Dakota to California and murdered after she tried to convert members of a satanic cult to Christianity. Terry believed that there were members of this satanic cult spread all over the country. It sounds questionable to say the least, but it actually became a popular theory as a result of Terry's book, which is why I felt I couldn't just leave it out completely. Apologies if you didn't really follow all of that. Honestly, I can't really say I did either. I'd say take it with a very large grain of salt. 
Retired FBI agent Kenneth Lanning, who I mentioned earlier, said that for a murder to be classified as satanic or have some kind of spiritual or religious connotation, it would have to be committed by two or more people. Lanning did not believe multiple people were involved. Santa Clara County Undersheriff Tom Rosa also rejected the theory that it was a ritualistic cult slaying. He told the Stanford Daily that the murder quote-unquote seems to fit the typical pattern of a sexual psychopath, and it just happened to take place in a church. It seemed far more likely that the killer staged the murder scene in such a manner to distract and divert attention from himself. The church was not symbolic for him, but it certainly helped push the Satanism theory and with that bring about hysteria in the media and amongst the public. While Arliss's case went cold, investigators never gave up. Santa Clara County Sheriff Lori Smith spoke of how personal the case was for her and for other investigators. According to Smith, the lead detective on the case, Sergeant Richard Alanis, kept a picture of Arliss Perry with him as a constant reminder that her life and case had value. Matt Breaker, who led the cold case unit at the DA's office, remarked how families, including Arliss's, never stop hoping for justice for their loved ones. The cold case unit routinely reviewed the case over the years, bringing in new investigators for a fresh perspective. The sheriff's office continued to send evidence to the crime lab in hopes that they might finally get the break in the case that they had worked for for so long. In 2018, 44 years since Arliss's murder, this long-awaited and well-deserved break finally came. Over the years, the case against the then-night watchman at the church, Stephen Crawford, who had actually never been cleared of the murder, became gradually stronger. In 2018, Crawford was 72 years old and had long since left his job at Stanford. Frustration was mounting amongst investigators as they just didn't have enough evidence to charge him. Crawford knew that he was a person of interest, even with the passing of more than four decades. He was still being interrogated as late as 2016. He continued to evade investigators, but his time was running out. In 2018, DNA from a semen stain found on the jeans Arliss had been wearing when she was murdered was retested and came back as a match to none other than Stephen Crawford, whose DNA profile they had in their database. This was enough for investigators to obtain a warrant to search Crawford's home. At 9.04 a.m. on Thursday, June 28, 2018, detectives from the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department arrived at the Del Coronado Apartments at 5273 Camden Avenue, where Crawford lived. They made their presence known, knocking and calling out to him through the closed front door. They had a warrant to search his apartment, they told him. The door was unlocked, so they entered. Crawford was sitting on the bed in the studio apartment, holding a handgun. On seeing the gun, the detectives retreated back out the door. Seconds later, they heard a single gunshot. On re-entering, they saw Crawford lying on the bed with a gunshot wound to the head. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Later that day, Sheriff Lori Smith held a press conference to announce that after 44 years, she and her colleagues believed they finally knew for sure who killed Arliss Perry. At last, her family would have closure. 
Sheriff Smith said, It's difficult for her family, it's difficult for the department, but we finally have closure on this case. We followed all the leads and unraveled the entanglement of the elements associated with the murder of Arliss Perry. This is a case that eludes us no longer. Retired detective Randy Benham, who worked the case in the late 90s and early 2000s, told the San Jose Mercury News that he had always been suspicious of Crawford. He said, I always had an eye on him. He was always in the back of my mind. Benham saw the suicide as confirmation of his belief that Crawford was guilty of killing Arliss Perry. I guess he didn't want to face society. Even though he wasn't brought to justice, justice was served, he said. Jean Dykema, who was 88 years old in 2018, spoke to the Mercury News about how painful those 44 years of not knowing had been for her family. It had been especially hard on her husband Marvin, who died in March 2018, just three months before the news broke about Crawford. Jean was heartbroken that he had not been captured sooner, so Marvin could have closure before he died. Former Mercury News columnist Scott Herhold had been researching the case since the late 70s. By 2018, he knew the case as well as any detective and had become very familiar with the activities of Stephen Crawford over the years. While he was not surprised that the evidence strongly implicated Crawford, he did not think it would end with him committing suicide. Crawford was a U.S. Air Force veteran. In 1971, he began working for the Stanford Department of Public Safety as a police officer. His favorite part of his job was that he got to carry a gun. In 1972, however, a new police chief took over. One of the things the new chief did was look into which officers were actually qualified to carry guns. In order to weed out those who were unqualified, officers were told they needed to reapply for their positions. Three quarters of the officers were found to be unqualified and were offered positions as security guards. Amongst them was Stephen Crawford. For years, Crawford complained about how unfair this was. In 1976, he left Stanford, but not without taking revenge for how he felt the university had wronged him. Crawford stole a range of priceless items from the university, including many American Indian artifacts, such as art and sculptures, and close to 200 rare books. He was also said to have stolen a cane belonging to the late Leland Stanford, founder of the university. According to Scott Herhold, Crawford also printed himself a degree certificate from Stanford using a blank diploma. In 1992, Crawford was arrested on suspicion of multiple thefts that took place back in the 70s. He was given a six-month suspended sentence. During an interview with police, he told them he was upset with Stanford University and investigators on the Arliss Perry case for treating him as a suspect in her murder. Scott Herhold told Palo Alto Online that he did not believe that Arliss was the intended victim, but rather her murder was a part of Crawford's revenge against Stanford. She paid a terrible price, Herhold said. Leticia Gonzalez, who managed the apartment building where Crawford lived, spoke to the Mercury News on June 28. Residents had been startled by a loud bang which turned out to be Crawford's self-inflicted gunshot wound. She recalled him being a loner who lived off social security and kept to himself. 
He usually wore a cowboy hat and walked with a cane. She never had any problems with him, she said, and she was shocked at what happened. Gonzalez had been inside Crawford's apartment several times over the years with maintenance workers. It was pretty bare, but she remembered the Western artwork. He had nice bronze statues of horses with Indians on them, she said. These were probably the same ones stolen from Stanford all those years ago. It's not clear whether the university got them all back. In the times Gonzalez had been in the apartment, she never saw any satanic symbols or objects that would suggest Crawford was involved in any sort of cult or satanic activity. Police who searched the apartment did find a jacket from Maury Terry's The Ultimate Evil book I mentioned earlier. However, I think it's likely that Crawford wanted to read Terry's take on Arliss Perry's murder he, Crawford, committed. He was probably laughing to himself about suggestions that he adhered to some sort of satanic ideology. There was nothing in the apartment that police could find to suggest this. I still think Crawford wanted to throw off investigators by staging the murder scene in a way that could indicate that it was a ritualistic or satanic killing, and Maury Terry, along with many others, fell for it. However, we'll never know for sure why Crawford killed Arliss Perry or why he staged her body in the way he did, as he died before investigators could question him again. The sheriff's department told the public that the cases of Leslie Perlov and Janet Taylor were not related to Stephen Crawford. It would not be long, however, before advancements in DNA analysis would help crack these cases also. On Tuesday, November 20th, 2018, the Santa Clara Sheriff's Office made an arrest in the 1973 murder of Leslie Marie Perlov. As they did in Arliss's case, cold case investigators had regularly been sending pieces of evidence from Leslie's murder scene to the crime lab for DNA analysis over the years. In early 2018, the crime lab came back with a DNA profile from an unknown male. In July, the DNA sample was sent to Parabon Nano Labs, a DNA technology company in Virginia. A profile was developed based on the sample, which was then sent to a public genealogy database. Based on the DNA of his relatives, the profile was matched to 74-year-old John Arthur Getru of Hayward, California. Investigators collected a DNA sample from Getru from a discarded item, I couldn't find precisely what, but something like a water bottle or a cigarette, which was sent to the crime lab for further testing. This new sample matched DNA evidence found at the Perlov crime scene. The conclusion of the lab report was, quote unquote, the probability that a random, unrelated individual could be included as a possible contributor to this deduced profile was approximately 1 in 65 septillion. On Monday, November 26, 2018, a wheelchair-bound Getru, dressed in a red jail jumpsuit, appeared in court for his arraignment hearing. Leslie's younger siblings, Diane and Craig, attended the hearing for the man who killed their sister. Speaking to reporters in the courtroom, Diane said, I was stunned. I still am. I am grateful to the dedicated heroes of law enforcement. I am relieved that this person will not hurt other women, and perhaps there will be justice. But mainly, I still miss my sister. Retired Detective John Johnson, who originally worked Leslie's case, also attended the hearing. 
He expressed his shock that someone had finally been arrested for the decades-old murder. It's a relief. When you work these cases, they stay with you. I didn't think we'd get anybody on this one. Science has made it so these cases will be solved, he said. On May 16, 2019, investigators charged Getru in the 1974 murder case of Janet Taylor. It was strongly believed that the Perlov and Taylor murders were linked. So when Getru was identified as Leslie Perlov's killer through DNA analysis, investigators sent more evidence from the Taylor murder scene, specifically her green corduroy pants she was wearing when she was killed, to the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office crime lab. On November 5, 2019, San Mateo County Deputy District Attorney Josh Stauffer put forward the evidence at a preliminary hearing. It showed the probability that the DNA belonged to anyone other than Getru was 1 in 102 billion. John Getru had been living in Palo Alto at the time of Leslie and Janet's murders, working as a medical technician. He was married and a scout troop leader. It really seems as though Getru just managed to keep slipping through the cracks over and over again. He definitely should have been locked up in 1973 when he murdered Leslie. She was not the first person he killed. In 1963, while living in Germany with his father, who was a U.S. Army officer, 18-year-old Jetru was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison for raping and murdering a 15-year-old American girl. The girl was the daughter of the chaplain of the Army's 8th Infantry Division. I am deeply sorry for her parents, and if I could do something to bring her back, I would do it, Getru said while on trial for the girl's murder. As he was American and still considered a juvenile in Germany, he was released on parole after serving just two years and allowed to return to the U.S. Honestly, it seems as though Germany just wanted to get rid of him. I can't fathom why else they would punish him so lightly. I'm also not sure whether the murder took place on an American military base in Germany, but this also could have played a factor in his sentencing. In 1975, he was charged with raping a 17-year-old Girl Scout in Palo Alto. He pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of statutory rape, paid a fine of $200, and spent just six months in prison. In 2020, the girl he raped all those years ago, now a 62-year-old woman, came to testify against Getru in a preliminary hearing for Leslie Perlov's murder case. Diane Doe, as she was called so that her identity would be kept secret, was a scout explorer in 1975, and Getru was her troop leader. She said at the hearing, This is the nightmare that has lasted for years, not being able to scream out, not being able to breathe. Presiding Judge Linda R. Clark ruled that there was enough evidence to put Getru on trial for the charges of murder and murder with the intent of perpetrating a rape or sexual assault. Getru has since pleaded not guilty to the murders of Leslie Perlov and Janet Taylor. He is being held at the Santa Clara County Main Jail. Getru was due to stand trial in September 2020 for Janet's murder, but was hospitalized with a brain aneurysm right before the trial was set to begin. His new trial was set to begin in January 2021, but that did not go ahead as planned. On May 19, 2021, an article was published in Palo Alto Online about where Getru's case stands currently. 
According to the article, Jetru's defense attorneys have submitted a case to the California Supreme Court, which says the DNA from discarded materials, for example, from something a suspect throws in the trash, is protected by privacy under the Fourth Amendment. If the defense is successful in their appeal to the Supreme Court, it will affect every case in which law enforcement used DNA from discarded materials going forward. Jury selection was set for May 10th, but due to these developments, the trial has been put on hold. I'll put a link to the article in the show notes for this episode. Nobody ever forgot about Leslie Perlov. Not the Sheriff's Department and their diligent investigators who worked the case tirelessly. Not the District Attorney's Office and our prosecutors and crime lab. We restarted the cold case unit in the DA's office about eight years ago, and the reason that we did that was for days like today, said District Attorney Jeff Rosen. While in court, Diane Perloff spoke of her mother, Florence, who died in 2014 and never saw Leslie's killer brought to justice. She always stayed strong, however, not letting the pain break her, but rather used it to keep her daughter's memory alive. Diane addressed John Getcher directly, expressing to him the profound pain her sister's murder caused her and her family. I cannot walk alone in the woods. I will not walk to my car at night with a scarf around my neck. These things have become second nature to me, as they are with many women in this country. I am telling you all this because I want you to know that murder does not just affect the deceased. It changes many lives. It takes many lives and impacts a family forever. And while justice doesn't heal all wounds, it is the least that we can do. Both of Janet's parents have died, so they were never able to see Getru brought to justice. I could not find whether Janet had any siblings. San Mateo County Sheriff's Office released the following statement from Janet's family on the news that her killer had finally been captured. Janet lived life with enthusiasm and courage. Janet's future was bright. It would have been wonderful to see what she would have done. We can't ever know all that we missed, but whatever she pursued, Janet would have served others with passion and kindness. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please consider giving me a five-star review on iTunes and subscribing wherever you're listening now. I'll also be putting up the blog post for this episode very soon on talkmurderwithme.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com talkmurder. I've decided to put my Patreon on pause while I grow my podcast. The links to my social media accounts are in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me at talkmurderwithme at gmail.com. Until next time, friends.